Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King, and it's good to be with you. I know that uh, some of you are here because uh, you are visiting friends or family. Uh, maybe some of you are here because uh, this is uh, your first time being in church in a while, and you're exploring the uh, claims of Christianity. Some of you are here because you are here every Sunday <laughs> and have been since the church began. And, and whether you are here passing through or this is your first time coming or this is your 500th time coming, I want you to know that you are welcome in this place. Uh, we are glad that you are here and with us because we come together uh, to worship God as his people to gather together as the people of God, to sing to him, to dine at his table, to sit under his word. And, and so welcome. We are glad that you're with us. Uh, and, and the portion of God's word that we're looking at this morning is from Exodus 19. Exodus 19. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus 19. We're going to look at verses 7 through the end of the chapter. Um, now, now, next week, just to give you a heads up of where we're going, because uh, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments, which uh, is uh, pretty, you know, maybe one of the highlights of the book. Um, there, there seem to be many highlights of the book of Exodus, but, but we're not going to hit Exodus 20 next week because next Sunday is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. And so during the season of Advent, we'll take a break from Exodus and spend some time in John chapter 1. And then we'll return to Exodus 20 in the new year. Uh, we're, we're not forgetting about the Ten Commandments, don't worry. Uh, we, we are going to come back to them. But before we get to them, we, we have this uh, section of verses before us, the section in which God is preparing Israel to hear those commandments, and he's preparing them to hear those commandments by revealing more of himself to them. It's going to reveal the fullness of who he is. And so let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all round, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. 
And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits round the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder uh, if you were asked to describe God in one word, to characterize God with one phrase, a theme of who God is, a particular aspect of his character, of his quality that you cling to, that you embrace. If, if there was what, just one word to describe God, what word you would choose? Well, the Huffington Post a number of years ago actually posed this question to its readers, and people could submit their, their uh, understanding of who God is, their one-word explanation of God. They could submit via email or social media and all these things. And you can imagine the different responses they got, right? When you sift through it, you put aside some of the, the ones that we would understand to be uh, heretical. <laughs> uh, but then you come across different ways of viewing God, ones that we would actually affirm. Things like God is powerful, God is love, God is awesome, God is present, right? Those are things that we can affirm as Christians, as those who love God's word in his Bible, we can affirm that, right? God is love, that's what 1 John tells us. God is love, God is near to his people, he is present. We're a number of different ways that people submitted this one word, number of different words that they put forth. But I wonder what you would put forth. If you could describe God in one word, what would be the word? If there was one theme that you cling to, that you embrace, that you hold dear, what would be that one theme? I've been thinking about this for the last couple of weeks because there is one theme about God, one aspect of his quality that has been staying with me ever since we were in the first few verses of Exodus 19. A couple weeks ago, you remember in that passage, God said a number of different things about his people and about himself. He said, I bore you on eagle's wings. He said, I'm making you into a holy nation, a Priest, a kingdom of priests, and you will be my treasured possession. And from those things that God is doing, we can discern that God is powerful. God is loving. God is gracious. God is merciful. We could cling to any one of those, but it's actually one aspect of that that I didn't mention that I've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks. I just can't get it out of my mind, and it's that fact that God draws his people near. Do you remember that's what he said? I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That is such a wonderful truth that God draws his people to himself. I love that idea. I can't help but think upon it all the time. That God is near to his people. This nearness of God, it's what theologians call God's imminence. We love God's imminence. 
Over the last number of years, the church has emphasized God's imminence so much so that one theologian said that we live in the age of imminence. That this is the character, the quality of God that we often run to, his nearness, his closeness, his imminence. Now, one theologian, a different theologian, a man named James K. Smith, he argues that we have exalted God's imminence and focused so much on it that we have moved out of the age of imminence and now we are in the malaise of imminence. <laughs> We've actually lost the wonder. We have lost the awe of God being near. You see, we're actually, as a church, in danger of being like those caricature artists at the amusement park. You know what those, those guys are like? You know, you sit down in front of them and they look, take one quality about your face, one facial feature, and they emphasize it, right? And so they give you these massive Dumbo ears or the tiny little nose or they put a gap in between your teeth so wide you would need a jump rope to floss with, right? Like this is what they do. They give you these absurd pictures of yourself, right? Has, have any of y'all ever done one of those? Anyone sat for one? A few of you, man, you guys are brave because I'd be a little nervous as to what they would uh, do to me, right? They'd make me have these tiny little ears because I have tiny little ears, this massive mouth, right? Like that's what they would give to me. Um, that's okay. You can, I do have a massive mouth. It's okay. I'm a little nervous, right? Because of what they would see and what they would emphasize. And every time someone would look at this picture, that's what they would see, these tiny little ears or this giant mouth or a big gap in between my teeth, right? And that's all you would see at the expense of every other characteristic, at the expense of every other quality. And that's what we often do with God. You see, if we emphasize his imminence so much, we end up actually forgetting other characteristics about him, particularly his transcendence. You see, it is true that God is near. It is true that he is imminent. It is true that the king of the heavens, the creator of the earth, that he draws near to his people, but it's also true that he is not like his people. And we need both. We need both. We don't just need to be done away with his imminence. We need to actually exalt his transcendence. We need to hold both in tension. And that's what this passage is helping us to do. You see, God has just called Israel and said, you will be mine. You will be near to my people. Remember, if you, you will be near to me as my people. Excuse me. Remember a few weeks ago, how this was a sign of dignity, of, of honor for Israel. They had once been slaves, but now they are God's people. And so I can imagine that as they hear this, they're approaching the mountain. They're filled with excitement and wonder. The fondness for their God is growing in their hearts. And they come to this mountain because God has beckoned them to come. And then he says, stop. Did you notice that? Three times. He warns them, do not touch. Three times he warns them, you can come close, but, but not too close. It's as though God is calling them, inviting them with one hand, waving them close while he holds up the other and says, no, don't come that close. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because he's not only imminent, he is not only near, but he's also different. He's transcendent. He's transcendent, and that's what I want us to see, friends, God's transcendence. 
He's not just imminent, but he is also transcendent. I want us to hold those two things in tension. And the way in which we see his transcendence, particularly in this passage, is through his power. His power. We see his power being revealed in a couple of different ways, but primarily through the way that he shows himself. Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. Okay, this is what's known as a theophany. See, the Bible tells us that God the Father is a spirit. He is a spirit. And so for him to reveal himself in a physical way to his people, he has to reveal himself in a theophany in which he appears in the midst of cloud or lightning or thunder, in the midst of the storm. That's what he's doing here. But it's not just any storm. Look, look how it's described in verse 18. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. When God descends upon the mountain, the earth shook. It trembled, it quaked, and so did his people. You see that in verse 16? In verse 16, the, the mountain is engulfed in this cloud. There is thunder and there is lightning. The trumpet blast. The people in the camp trembled. Now that Hebrew word there for tremble, when it is in connection to people, it often has the connotation of fear. They are afraid. They are shaking with fear. Because the God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is in their presence. They're afraid. Because they realize that this place is not safe. This reminds me of that scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That wonderful book by C.S. Lewis. For those of you who are not familiar, C.S. Lewis wrote this wonderful children's novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This magical place called Narnia that is under the curse of the white witch. It is always winter but never Christmas. I mean, how awful could that be? <laughs> always winter but never Christmas. That is the curse that the witch has brought. And, and this magical land filled with talking beasts like beavers and horses and minotaurs and fawns and centaurs. And there are these four children that are swept into this magical land. And they come across the beavers. And the beavers are telling them all about this land and, and the white witch. And they tell them about their hope that one day Aslan will return and he will rid the land of the curse and there will one day be spring. And there's a warmth that fills them as they're even hearing about this day to come. And so the children assume that Aslan is the king, that he is a man. And, and the beavers correct them very quickly and say, no, 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 Aslan's not a man, he's a lion. He's not just a lion, he is the lion. And now they're a little bit afraid, right? Because kids, if you came face to face with a lion, right, like not, not through bars, not through the glass at the zoo, but you were stuck in the lion's den, in the pit, with just you and the lion, that would be terrifying, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would be scary. He would engulf you with one bite. And so the children are nervous, right? They're afraid. This lion that's coming, and so what does Susan ask? The eldest daughter, she says, is he safe? How do the beavers respond? Safe? 
Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Now, if you've read those books, we love to cling to that last clause, but he's good. (laughs) But do not hold to that without remembering that first clause, he isn't safe. See, Lewis gets it right like he does in so many of his writings. God isn't safe, he's terrifying and ferocious. And when God's people are confronted by his presence, that is often the response that they have. This is not safe. Think about the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, when he enters into the temple and the room fills with smoke and the, sh- the foundations of the temple shook, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was terrified at God's awesome glory and power. He trembled. And Israel trembled. And the earth quaked. They tremble at his power. It reminds me of that spiritual that we often sing at Easter time. Were you there when they crucified the Lord? There's five stanza and five questions, and in response to each of the questions is the same repeated phrase, sometimes. It causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. I wonder, I wonder if you have room in your theology I wonder if you have room in your relationship with God to tremble. You see, when God is only near, when he is only imminent, when he is only comforting, it is very easy for us to approach him with apathy and carelessness. But the God that we serve, the God of the Bible, is not only a comforting father, he is that, but he is a consuming fire. His power makes the earth and our hearts tremble. He is not like us. His power is on display, but but his power does not only show his transcendence, so does his holiness. His holiness. Three times I already mentioned we're told that they are not to touch. Look, in verse 12, they say, do not, he says, do not take care not to go into the mountain. In verse 21, He tells Moses, warn the people lest they break through to the Lord. In verse 24, he says, do not let the priests and people break through to come up to the Lord. God is telling them again and again, you can come close, but not too close. And when you do come, he says in verse 10, the people are to be consecrated. He tells Moses, consecrate the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. That word for consecrate, it means to purify. In, in uh, ritual context, in purity context, it, it means to make acceptable, to come close to God. Be ready. Be consecrated. Be warned. Why is God making such a big deal of this? Like, why can't they come to this mountain? Well, in order to understand this, you have to actually know something about uh, Old Testament purity rituals. <laughs> 
And so what, what we have to understand is, is where the direction of redemptive history is going. You see, at the end of Exodus, um, God is going to give direction for the building of the, the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, this is the place where God will dwell amongst his people. He will come on, come on to the tabernacle and dwell within it so that his people can come and worship before him. But then after he gives the instructions for the tabernacle, we have the book of Leviticus, which is a really, I mean, that's a pretty clear book, right? Pretty easy to understand, right? No, of course not. It's very complicated. It seems strange to our modern ears, right? All the sacrifices and feasts and all these things that are going on. But basically what God is doing is what one uh, writer about the book of Leviticus said. He's instructing the people how they're to live when God moves in next door, because that's what's happening. The king of the universe is moving into their midst. He's going to be their neighbor, and they need to know how to live with him as their neighbor. And so he gives all these instructions, and he gives these categories of holy and common and clean and unclean. And the reason why he's doing this is because the holy God will be in the midst of an unholy people. Now, what does this have to do with this passage? Everything. Because God descends upon the mountain, and he makes his abode there, and he, because of his presence, makes the mountain itself holy, because the mountain, in essence, becomes his sanctuary. We could spend an awful lot of time about tracing the sanctuary and the theme of that throughout the Bible. We don't have time this morning, but that is what God is doing. He is making the mountain the place in which he meets with his people. And a holy God cannot meet with unholy people. They can't draw near to him. They can't touch the mountain because if they do, they will die. You see, God's warning his restriction, his prohibitions around the mountain is a way of him showing how holy he is. That he is too holy for them to come near. He is too holy for them to walk up on the mountain. He is even too holy for those who touch the mountain and are killed to be touched by others. That's why he says stone them or shoot them. Shoot them with an arrow. <laughs> That's what he's saying. His holiness is too great for them. It's a way of him showing his distinction from them. But these prohibitions, it's also a way of God caring for his people. It's a God, way for God show, to show his love for his people. I mean, three times he repeats, do not touch. Three times he warns them, do not come near. Now, why does he do that? Well, in one sense, he's emphasizing the difference between him and his people. He's saying it again and again, but I think in another way he's doing this because his people need to hear it more than once. See, we know, like Israel, we, as soon as we hear, do not touch, what do we want to do? <laughs> we want to touch. As soon as we hear, do not do, we want to do, right? So, so kids... Some of you maybe have put up your Christmas tree, right? And, and we're after Thanksgiving, so it's seasonally appropriate for you now to put up your Christmas tree, right? So some of you have your Christmas tree up, and, and you're decorating it, right? You put your, your lights on it, and there's ornaments, and there's glitter, and there's all sorts of pretty things and fragile things. And as soon as it's up and you take a step back, what is the first thing your parents say to you? Do not touch. That's right. That's exactly right. Don't touch it. Don't touch it, right? 
I mean, that's what my parents said to me. And they didn't just say it once, but they kept saying it again and again. And every time they told me, it's like the, the stakes were ramped up a little bit more. Like, like don't touch the lights because you're going to pull them off. Don't touch that ornament because you'll break it. Don't grab hold of the tree and try to climb up because it'll fall over and you'll break your arm and ruin Christmas. Right? Like, the, that's kind of what they do, right? Maybe it was just me. <laughs> But that's what we do. They have to tell us over and over and over again, do not touch. Because as soon as we hear do not, we want to. And you know what, kids? This isn't just a problem that you have. This is a problem that your parents have. And it's a problem that your parents' friends have. And it's a problem that I have. Because in our sinfulness, as soon as we hear do not, we think that maybe God is withholding something from us. We think maybe he's withholding something that's good from us. We start wondering, maybe there's something beautiful here that he's, he's just wanting us not to participate in. We start to question, is he really good? I mean, that was the temptation of the serpent with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's how he got at them, wasn't it? In the garden, God gave them one prohibition. Don't eat from that one tree. That was it. Eat from everywhere else, but that one tree, do not eat from it. And what did the serpent say? You won't die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In essence, what he was doing was he was placing before them the idea that God was withholding goodness from them that it was good for them to know as God knows. And so Adam and Eve ate and ignored God's warning and they disobeyed him. And what they found in their disobedience wasn't that God's prohibition was there because he didn't care for them, but because he does care for them. God's warning, his call to obey, it's reflecting not only his holiness, but his holy protecting of his people. You see, friends, the truth is, is that we are in the place of greatest care when we are abiding by God's word. Israel is at their safest when they heed his warning. When they don't come up onto the holy mountain but when they abide by his word. Okay, but where does that leave us then? Because what we need is God's presence. I mean, that's what was lost in the garden. Adam and Eve, they were expelled from the garden, and ever since, man has longed for that presence again. Where does that leave us? Who can approach the Lord? I mean, we know from Psalm 24 that the psalmist says that the only one who can ascend the hill of the Lord and the only one who can stand in the holy place is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. But we also know that when we are honest with ourselves about our sin, about our struggles, about our rebellion, that clean hands and pure hearts, those aren't the words that describe us. We know that on our own, if we approach a holy God, we have to say with Isaiah, woe is me. So where does that leave us? What are we to do? You see, friends, the amazing thing is that God, 
God provides a way for his people. The amazing thing is, is that we do not come to God on our own, but God comes to us. See, that's what he does. In verse 11 and 20, we're told that the Lord came down on Mount Sinai. That the powerful and most holy God, he stooped down from heaven and he came to his people. And he spoke to them, but he spoke to them through what? A mediator. You guys know what a mediator is. Someone who stands in the gap who stands on behalf of, of one person or a group of people on behalf of another. God provided a way for his people to hear his word and to be brought into communion with him through this one, through a mediator. That's what we see in verse 9. God says to Moses, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. This is who Moses is. This is who he has been since his initial call when God spoke to him out of the burning bush. When God sent him into Egypt, he has been mediating God's presence to his people. You see, friends, we can't come to a holy God. And so a holy God comes to us. This is exactly what Israel needed. And this is what we need. And thanks be to God, he has done this. He has given us exactly what we need. He has done so not through Moses, but a holy God comes to us through a mediator greater than Moses. In Hebrews chapter 8, we're told that Christ is the last mediator. Because in Jesus, God stooped low. He came down and he took on flesh. In Christ, he walked amongst his people. He dwelt with us. He touched us, the holy God touched his people, and he spoke to them, and we heard his voice. And he lived, and he died, and he rose again to draw us to himself, to bring us to the Father. You see, that is how finite and sinful people approach an infinite and holy God. It is through another through Jesus. You see, that's what makes his imminence so amazing. That's what makes his imminence so amazing. What makes it so amazing is the fact that he is near to his people as the transcendent one. He's not just near as though he can't do anything about our problems or our difficulties or our sin, but that he comes near as the transcendent God to do away with our sin to draw us to himself. That's what makes his nearness so amazing. That the holy God would stoop down in his power and glory and he would come to his people. And so, friends, let us tremble. Let us tremble before him. Let us obey his word. Let us sing and wonder, as the song says, not only at the fact that he comes near at his imminence, but also at his glorious transcendence. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that in your grace and mercy to your people, in your glory and your power, you stooped low. You came down. You revealed yourself on Mount Sinai in thunder and cloud and lightning, but you revealed yourself to us in your Son. And for that we are thankful. And we call upon your name and we say, you are our God. There is no one else who could draw near and there is no one else 
who could use power and holiness to deliver us from our sin, and you have. And so we praise you and worship you and ask that you would lead us into obedience of you. Help us to tremble at your presence. We pray in Christ's name and God's people said, Amen.